welcome to the Farm Beats podcast. Farm Bits is proudly produced by the Nebraska Digital Agricultural Team and hosted by students at the University of Nebraska. The Farm Bits podcast comes to you each week to discuss the trends, the realities, and the value of digital agriculture through interviews with experts, producers, and innovators from across the agricultural industry. We hope that you step away from each episode with new practical knowledge of digital agriculture technology. Hello, FarmBits followers, and welcome to the 2023 summer season, where we will be covering digital agriculture in specialty cropping systems. I'm Katie Bathke. And I am Deepak Gimire, and we are glad to have you with us as we begin our discussion on urban agriculture with Henry Gordon-Smith, founder and CEO of Agritecture. Hi, everyone. I'm Henry Gordon-Smith. I'm the founder and CEO of Agritecture. A little bit about me. I grew up around the world. I sound American, but my mother's Czech. My father's British. I was born in Hong Kong, grew up in Hong Kong, Tokyo, Germany, Czech Republic, and Russia. The reason I share that is because I have a very global outlook. And I think what agriculture does now is very focused on global aspects of agriculture and technology. So I studied political science for my undergraduate degree. I thought I was going to be a diplomat with my international background. And then I started becoming aware of the climate crisis and decided to dedicate my career to solving those problems. In order to do that, I needed to find a gap in the market. I wanted to find a business uh, solution to these problems. I believe that business can really help solve these problems faster than some of the other options. Uh, I was a bit disappointed by some of my policy internships and work and the bureaucracy. So I wanted to get into business, but business is about finding a gap, a niche. So I was looking around and I found um, several gaps, but one of them was urban agriculture. And I started a blog about that. And then I studied food security and urban agriculture to get more educated. And then I moved to New York with uh, big city dreams of uh, being an urban farmer and working with the sector. And I studied at Columbia and did my master's in sustainability management. And I can talk more about the evolution of the blog into the business later on. But that's the high level background of who Henry is. Awesome, like so interesting to see how you travel across those regions, countries, and then came up with a beautiful idea to start with this company. Uh, so uh, on this note, can you please share with our audience like what uh, the agritecture company is and a brief story behind how you came up with this idea to start agritecture? So as I was finding the sort of gap in the niche to, to fill, I had some experience blogging. So I was a blogger for Royal Bank of Canada in the early days of blogging, and I was a blogger for my university and my undergrad, the University of British Columbia. So I was comfortable with doing research and analyzing it and sharing both video and written content. So I decided the best way for me to figure out what I liked and what was the gap, what people liked, was to start some blogs and to see what stuck. So I started three blogs. One of them was called Technology Water, which was about latest news and technology and water for sustainability. One was called Urban Layering, which was sort of this novel concept of layering density in cities versus going vertical. And one of them was called Agritecture, which as the name implies is about applying architectural thinking to farming. And the concept behind Agritecture is really what happens when we think about planning farms as architects, when we think about each of these individual types as typologies and the city sort of as the canvas that we can match them to. So I ran all the blogs for six months and then agritecture was just so much more popular and so much more interesting to me. So I stopped the other two and I just kept focusing on the blog agritecture. And that evolved a bit. I started doing some workshops where we would actually design farms. Uh, we'd go to cities and we would create a methodology to select a site and design the farm and choose the crops. And that became a foundation for the feasibility studies we now execute on our consulting practice. Um, I also did a lot of speaking engagements and just became a, you know, I was named a thought leader in the sector when it was pretty early. So the blog started in 2011. So that was before the first commercial vertical farm in North America was uh, built, for example. So I sort of uh, drove the interest in the sector as well as followed it, which, which put me in an interesting position to, uh, yeah, to do more. So around 2014, I started getting a lot of consulting requests. The sector had matured and people were wanting to build these farms and get the data. And there was a key problem that arose, which is, you know, as you're planning these farms, how do you plan them? Like, what is, what's the methodology to plan them, number one? And number two, you know, when you're engaging with suppliers, uh, for example, lighting or greenhouse or rooftop solutions, you know, they're going to sell you their equipment, but they're not necessarily going to give you the information to look holistically at the project. 
So there was no sort of third party that could guide you independent of selling you equipment on what to do. It didn't exist in the industry. And so we stepped up and we built the world's first global ag tech consulting firm focused on localization of agriculture and these urban agriculture, these novel approaches like vertical farming. And that was the gap again that, that we started to fill. And we started to really find there were a lot of entrepreneurs planning these farms that needed the information. There were big consulting firms that were doing feasibility studies that just needed the data. There started to be cities that demanded our services as well. And so since 2014, we've grown to work on over 250 projects in 40 countries. Uh, we've got a team of 15 full-time employees. Uh, we range from architecture to agronomy, to engineering, to economics and sustainability. And as a multidisciplinary practice, we, we lead the world as far as developing these projects independent of pushing you to buy certain equipment. I love that. This was the space that we were kind of wanting to reach when we talk about specialty crops and what agriculture can look like in other parts of the world. And so I think this is going to be really exciting to hear about. And I love that you found a niche for this, because I feel like when we talk about digital technology, we're talking about a niche, like we want we want to know something else. So with that, can you talk to us more about the specific products and services offered by Agritecture? Yeah, so there's sort of three parts to the organization. The first part is the oldest and, and it's our legacy. It's our, it's, our, it's our DNA, which is the content platform. So we post tons of articles about uh, different technologies, about local food systems, about policy, about um, equity and food access. We frequently post new, unique blog content as well as syndicated blog content and, and have a very popular uh, blog for this sector. And we try to really be honest. We try to drive honest discussions about the pros and cons. We talk about the failures as well as the successes. And that's actually evolved to be a bit of sponsored content too. We make some money off it when certain companies want to promote what they're doing. We, we create custom content for them and webinars as well. The second part of the business, as I mentioned, was consulting. And, and you know, that's where we advise uh, four main client types. One is people planning farms. So these are new and existing farmers. So an existing farmer who is considering controlled environment agriculture or a new farmer who's building their first farm that's usually local, like close to a city or in a city. And most of the time using uh, controlled environment technologies like hydroponic greenhouses or vertical farms or container farms. And so we provide feasibility studies to them, everything they would need to understand the market, to choose the site, to uh, plan the business from an economic and equipment perspective and prepare for fundraising or prepare to just build the farm. So we sort of accelerate these companies. Uh, we also work with cities. Atlanta was our first city that hired us to work with their director of urban agriculture. And in that we really helped to solve certain issues around how do you merge the high-tech approach with food access and equity, which tends to be a lot more low-tech. Investors are very excited about the sector, and that's another client category. And so what they struggle with is how to do due diligence, and understand which investments are viable, uh, what the numbers are that they're seeing from the candidates they're considering investing, uh, and what that trajectory is for success. So we do red flags analysis and due diligence for investors. That's a, a service that's rising in popularity. And finally, we also work with corporates. For example, IKEA wanted to understand how to integrate urban agriculture globally. They hired us to do an analysis of the top companies around the world and educate their urban farming team that they have and help them identify how to build the right pilot. So that's the range of, of services that we provide on the consulting side. Finally, the third pillar of our company is the newest one, and that is Agritecture Designer, which is uh, our attempt to scale up our impact in all the things we've learned over the past decade. So when you're planning these farms, you know you really need to get the right information. And that data, as I mentioned in earlier in my conversation, is really difficult to access. That's, that's how our company was born, is people just don't get that information. And, and, and it's really difficult to understand yields of vertical farms versus greenhouses, CapEx, OpEx, et cetera. It's, it's almost like this, this box that you can't get information, you can't get access to because people aren't sharing that data. So we realized that we had a unique position to be able to analyze how these farms perform and share what we've learned. And so we decided to build the world's first farm planning software. And the objective here is to modernize the approach to planning new farms, give people um, the lowest cost way to get the numbers they need to estimate um, and to think about what their impact could be. 
So it works pretty cool. It's a it's an interesting software where you can go in and there's a lot of features. You can take online classes to learn best practices. You can do market research on the platform. But the main part that our users get enthusiastic about is the modeling part. So I can input the location of my farm. I can choose from a ton of crops. I can choose levels of automation. I can choose different hydroponic systems. I can choose what the input uh, drivers are, labor, energy, water. And then within seconds after I complete that form, I can get a report of how the farm will perform. So we're really creating a, a new way for people to get the numbers they need so that they don't build the wrong kinds of farms. And also we're saving them tons of money because in contrast to a typical consulting engagement, agriculture designer is dramatically more affordable. And it doesn't give you as much detail as our consulting services, but it does give you enough to be able to say, oh, I should do this or I shouldn't do this, or I am refining my idea, my direction. Final feature on the software is it's almost like a two-sided marketplace. So as people plan the farms, once they're done with their plan, they can reach out to us and we have a dedicated person that will connect them to over 30 suppliers that can actually build the farm. And these suppliers are vetted by us. They provide data to prove that they can execute the work and we introduce them and we help the farms get built. So it's a relatively new project for us. It's been exciting. It's been challenging to get into software and digital work. It's almost like a new startup within our, our startup. So that's been a, an adventure to say the least, but I'm really excited about our impact because you know recently I was in Saudi Arabia and I visited uh, Batr Farms, which is the world, the largest vertical farm in Saudi Arabia, and they planned their farm on our software, selected one of our partners and built the farm. So it's very, really validating to see that, you know, we made their journey to planning the farm, you know, 10 times cheaper and faster. So it's been really exciting. And, and those are the three parts of agritecture uh, in a nutshell. <laughs> great, great, great line of services. And you got a wide range of customers and whatnot, like covering a lot number of countries. So as you also mentioned, like you have been providing services to different regions of the country. So uh, follow-up question with that, like are these products or services provided by Agritexer available to customers globally or only in specific regions of the world? Yeah, we, we are available to anyone around the world. We, we really, again, based on my background, we strive to be global. We, we get excited again, with the agriculture name and, and our methodology of the unique context of each market, whether it's climate or economic conditions um, or the available skills to then get creative about what is gonna be the right design, the right crops, the right solution. So we really love that process. So every time we get a new market, it's very exciting for us because it challenges us and helps us really apply our methodology. With that said, the vast majority of our projects, which you can look on our website and see a map of our, of our impact, is North America, the European Union, and the GCC in the Middle East. So those are pretty evenly divided, I would say, in percentage of work there. Maybe North America is a bit higher um, because we're headquartered in New York City, but those are the main regions we work in. However, we have done, I think, three projects in Africa now, and we've done probably five projects in Southeast Asia. We haven't had much penetration in Latin America yet, but we certainly hope to. And uh, yeah, so we're def definitely global. And uh, but those are some of the regions. You know, the GCC is having a bit of a a big growth in in the sector because of their lack of water and arable land. So you know, definitely we follow where the trends are going and and provide our support where where that rise is happening. That's really awesome. That's really unique too. I like that you're you're global, but yet you're offering services that can be specific to that region. And I think that's incredibly important. And I love that your company kind of bases it off of that. So with that, can you just talk to us a little bit more of how your how this company is leveraging digital tools to further the the technological advancement in agriculture and in areas where maybe that's more difficult? Yeah, so there's a number of ways we're doing that. I guess I'll just start on the consulting side and like how we work with our clients.
One aspect is, is when a client is planning a high-tech farm, their CapEx is significant. So it's important that we recommend digital operational solutions for them to track data and understand what's happening in their farms. That's part of the process of recommending that. And that's what also helps make the farm smarter, right? A lot of farms don't track their data in general, conventional farms. They just don't track enough of it. But when you're built indoors, you not only have an ability to control the crops in a meaningful way, but you have more of an opportunity and incentive to uh, track that data more effectively. And, and I wouldn't say it's perfect. Controlled environment agriculture, greenhouse vertical farms, a lot of them don't track enough data, unfortunately, based on our surveys and analysis. But it is, I think, better than outdoor farms, uh, typically, because of that, that equipment, that CapEx. Now, we also work more broadly in the climate smart agriculture sector. So we don't just work on indoor farms. Uh, one example is Microsoft awarded us the largest uh, grant for their AI for Earth initiative, which was really exciting for me because it was in the Czech Republic, which is where I'm from. My mom is Czech and that's where my parents live. And so we were awarded this to help hop farmers, the key ingredient in beer, to adapt to climate change. They're experiencing a lot of droughts, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of volatility and yields. So we sort of thought about digital solutions as well as IoT hardware solutions to help them adapt. And it was a really exciting sort of 18 month journey with Microsoft and with Pilsner Urquell, which is the best uh, Pilsner beer in the world, uh, of course. And so we worked with those hop farmers and we basically found six different pilot projects, pilot farms to install IoT equipment, soil sensors, uh, tracking of the growth of the plant. We installed cameras to build AI models to look at okay what's happening on the outside of the plant, as well as get data on the inside of the plant. And what we're able to find was certain correlations between the elevation of the farm, uh, the, their access to water, their soil that helped guide them on reducing some of their resources like pesticide use or water, water use. And it's just the start of the project that's going to continue. Um, but that was a really exciting example of how farmers with no digital um, solutions so far could get into that. And the big challenge there was convincing the farmers. And, and that was a, an exciting challenge for me to go visit the farms and speak in check and work with them. Uh, but that was, you know, that was something that I think is, is important across ag tech is, is helping farmers adopt that. And our best way of doing that was finding champion farmers, the farmers that are more willing to innovate and then other farmers could follow them. So really wishing the best for that, that project. Uh, finally, our software, right? So when COVID hit, you know, our services were affected like many companies. Uh, people considered some of services as extras. So we, we saw a revenue decline that we were concerned about and we also were disconnected as a company because, you know, we couldn't see each other uh, and there was a lot of challenges with that. So we said, OK, what can we do to kind of create digital solutions in this sort of new world where we're all remote for who knows how long? And so we decided to launch a couple of features. This is where Architecture Designer was developed. So we came up with the idea of Architecture Designer and accelerated it through COVID. Uh, so it was really a, a COVID product, so to say, that was born in that time. Uh, but we also launched other things like just a digital service called Ask Agritecture, where you can book us for 30 minutes at a reduced price and just on demand immediately get to an agronomist or an engineer or somebody in sustainability or economics of agriculture to answer your questions. Uh, we also launched a digital series of um, conferences because all the conferences had been canceled to engage our community and to make sure that we were connecting with potential opportunities as well. So yeah, I, I would say that we the, the COVID experience catalyzed our, our digital transformation as a company, um, but also we've been part of helping farms themselves transform more digitally as well. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Like I like the idea how like you get a lead farmer and then try to develop a model farm for them and then let other farmers see and follow the lead farmers. I think that's a really great way to disseminate the digital tools and technologies also, we previously talked something about the architecture designer and uh, what it does. But if you have like anything extra additional to add to uh, the product itself and also explain to us that how it's adding value to the local food systems. Well, I don't know. Can I, do you want me to show it to you quickly? <laughs> is that something I should do? Or is that not not right for this podcast? But you can check it out. There's a seven day free trial, so anybody can look at it and get the experiences. 
of how it works at design.agritecture.com. But again, just to reiterate, it's unique in the sense that farm planning itself is, is a long and arduous process. You know, if, if I want to plan a farm and I don't have the knowledge for it, I have to read tons of articles. I have to spend money to go to events. And then I'm looking at all this stuff, like all this equipment, greenhouse, vertical farm, precision ag. And, and I don't have a consistent or standardized data set to interpret all of that information. So a lot of people get stuck or overwhelmed, but more importantly, many people just rush. They just sort of like pick one and go for it. And that's a huge mistake because planning prevents poor performance, right? So, so we know that if you spend a little bit more time or a little bit smarter time planning, your likelihood of success increases dramatically. And we see this in our data. We actually surveyed controlled environment agriculture operators around the world in the biggest survey of it of them. And we found that 73% of them, if they could go back in time, they would have chosen a different crop or a different technology, which I think is really scary and a problem we want to solve because that's a huge problem. When you build that kind of infrastructure and you're growing basil and you wish you were growing something else, but you just didn't prepare, that means your likelihood of enjoying the work as well as succeeding is, is reduced. That, so that's that's a problem that we solve in the software because we give you an ability within such a quick period of time to run models for different crops, different solutions, different technologies, um, so that at a much, much lower cost and from the comfort of your home or your cell phone, you can estimate these things and get really educated. And so we sort of serve as this third party that provides this unbiased data to let people experiment and to explore, which I think is a key part of the process that I believe in, that I'd like to get more people to work on. And, and it's kind of an architectural approach, right? It's like keeping an open mind to what's possible versus to just going for what's been done before, or what's been sold to you. So I think that's a big part of our brand and, and our mission and what the software does. And so today we've had about like 6,000 free users and 600 paid users. And we've got about four farms that have been built uh, by using the data on the software. We have over 30 supplier partners, uh, including financing partners, equipment partners, and some service partners. So we're trying to bring the ecosystem online and trying to get that planned again. And we, we really are proud of the fact that it's affordable and efficient. And so there's really no reason not to try it um, and to see what you can learn and find, whether you're just exploring your ideas and considering what's possible or whether you have an existing farm, maybe you're an outdoor farmer and you're thinking, okay, well, what would it take for a greenhouse? To give one example there, you know, outdoor farmers often, depending on what they're growing, often don't get a lot of cash flow from their farm. And so their, their risk is pretty significant because they only sell their products once a year and it's whatever the market will buy or whatever the contracts they have there. But yet they have all this asset of this land. I was visiting a farmer in uh, Spain uh, a couple months ago. And what they did is they, they, they have 40 acres of olive production and they said, okay, I'm gonna see if I can convert a portion of that into a greenhouse that will grow year round and will create some additional cash flow for me. And in the end, they decided to build a hydroponic greenhouse growing dragon fruit, a specialized product that they could sell in the market. And in controlled environment agriculture, the dragon fruit yields are six times higher um, and the labor to manage it is quite low. So now he has this greenhouse, he's got additional revenue and he hasn't really taken too much of his property uh, to convert that and it can grow year round. It's relatively low maintenance. So we really wanna guide both new farmers that are considering like urban, high-tech farms, sort of that trend, as well as existing farmers that haven't considered controlled environment agriculture to use our software to get those estimates, again, at a fraction of the cost that consulting might cost. I love the example. I think that's really unique. And thank you for sharing that. So you talk about this really awesome global perspective. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the crops that you have been developing in these different projects? Yeah, so when it comes to controlled environment agriculture, which includes greenhouses, vertical farms, and container farms, there are some limitations to the crops that are possible. Uh, you know, when you replace the sun with artificial light or any kind of control, right, controlling climate, et cetera, you're paying for that control. So what I like to remind people of is that it's about the edible biomass, right? What's the percentage of the plant that's consumable? Because outdoors, you get free sunlight, which is a huge driver, of course, for the growth of biomass. Uh, but indoors, you're paying for, for that growth. So that tends to be products that are faster turnaround, leafy greens, microgreens, herbs, et cetera. And in greenhouses, of course, 
We have a wide range of crops, melons, vine crops, tomatoes, cucumbers, et cetera, um, that you can do that are possible. Um, so we have 75 of the most popular crops for indoor farming on there. Again, a range of microgreens, a range of herbs, a range of leafy greens. And then we also have common crops for greenhouses on there. Each of those crops is divided um, between even soil-based solutions for greenhouses and then multiple different hydroponic systems. So even though there's about 75 crops that we started with, each of those has you know, three to five different options. And we calculated the yields for those, the energy demands for those, and we've made them easily accessible so you can model it out. So when you're modeling in the software and you go to the crop selection part, you can select from any of those crops, you can select the method, and then you can select the percentage of your facility that's growing that crop. So you can actually build a facility that has a range of crops in it or is more monoculture in its production. And uh, that's really exciting. Now, in addition to the yields, and the water and the energy that we calculate, we also have pre-uploaded weather data and light data. So if you put a greenhouse in Dubai versus a greenhouse in New York City, you're gonna have a different economics if all the other variables are the same because the climate conditions are already on there. And, and we've calculated and created algorithms related to those um, impacts on the plants. So it's pretty exciting and like, I think pretty revolutionary what we've done because no one has done this with agricultural data and made it so um, able to be manipulated to your context. So I, again, I really, I really get excited about that. Now we're adding more crops. Uh, more recently, we added mushrooms. So now you can do mushroom containers in the platform. And we're also looking at some other novel crops like uh, vanilla and saffron and some other things that are quite popular for added value products, even dragon fruit. We'd love to add that in there based on that case study. So working more on those projects overall and building more sort of databases related to that. We also want to work with partners longer term. If they have, if there's a corporate or government entity that wants to encourage production of a certain crop, we can also bring those partners into the software, bring that data and again, work with others to grow you know, what's possible um, as far as what people can estimate in the software. That's really interesting, like how you customize and provide like the estimated returns, estimated costs for each of those crops. And I'm really amazed like how you are using the weather, available weather data to customize it to local conditions and to a local farm. I think that's, that's a really great. And um, so as you are talking more about the agriculture design, you mentioned that one of the key features is the affordability of the product. Or, so can you please explain to our listeners about the pricing model for the agriculture design and how each plant tier is different? Yeah, so one of the common mistakes I've seen in my 10 years of working in the sector is especially new farms. Again, I shared that data point of choosing the wrong crop. <clears throat> um, is, is, is just not doing enough market research. I get it, market research isn't very sexy. Like it's not the most fun, it's hard, you can't get the right data. And sometimes it's very disappointing to see how little you can make off of these products. Uh, however, there are ways to make money off agriculture. And one of the key parts for planning that you should focus on versus the parts that are more sexy, like the technology or what it's gonna look like, is the market, is, is who's gonna buy your product? Who is that customer? How many of them are there? And what is the approach and the sales model you're going to have? So if my budget for my farm is $200,000, right? Very low budget. I need to understand I'm not going to be selling wholesale. I'm not going to have the volume to compete at wholesale. I need to understand that I'm going to have to sell direct to consumer, get the customers to pick up for me or deliver to them, or maybe serve restaurants. So essentially our software, whether you're large scale or small scale, whether your budget's small or large, allows you to evaluate products from your market in the software. So you go to the market research, the crop a pricing tool is what it's called, and you input data from your market. So for example, in the software, you'll see, okay, you choose the crop category, leafy greens, and then you choose the crop. And then you say, okay, where did I record this price? I recorded it at a supermarket. What was the price? Um, you know, what was the quality of it? What was the size of it, et cetera. And you're encouraged to do that three times. And after those three times, it accesses our database of market research, as well as an algorithm that will recommend the right price based on where you recorded it. So for example, if you pick a supermarket versus a farmer's market, the price and the economic value to you, the margin will be adapted. So what happens then is you build this library of crops. So each user gets their own library of crops that they've built when they finish that tool. 
And then when they're modeling in the software in the next stage, when they're modeling what their greenhouse is and answering a lot more factors about energy rates and labor rates and, and scale, et cetera, um, they can actually pull in from their library. So the data that the economics presents is actually based on the market research you conducted. And so that I think is a really key part of the software that we encourage users to use and benefit from because they're building a crop library based on market research methodologies that they can use forever as long as they're a subscriber to model out whatever farms they want. Awesome. Like I, I love the modeling aspect. I love how it's kind of unique and how you're introducing people into these different sectors and really creating that path to innovation as well as the path to um, being successful as, as an individual entity, which a lot of farmers are. And I think that's really important. Can you talk to us about your commercial urban farming course and how an individual can benefit from this course? Yeah. So many years ago, um, we started doing in-person classes in New York City where we would go through our process for planning the farms and teach people about what technologies, what business models, what uh, sales approaches, um, <clears throat> differences between regions, basically all of our knowledge. Again, we started making it more accessible with in-person classes and uh, those classes would sell out. I mean, they were just so popular. People loved them. They would come to our office. We'd work in person over the weekend and it was a great uh, value that we created. When COVID hit, those classes weren't happening. So uh, we decided to put them online. So we, we you know, recorded them in high quality and broke them down into modules and built, uh, again, took our supplemental information like activities and like Excel sheets and homework assignments and put them all into one platform. And uh, it's, it's really the best urban farming course. In fact, Treehugger uh, rated it as the most uh, affordable, the best uh, a budget option. So, you know, literally, if you sign up for our light plan, which is $29 a month, you can just take the classes and you'll be done. And you can do that in a month for sure. So it's quite affordable and, um, and, and, and reasonable. And also with the light plan that we have, you can do some basic modeling. You can't do a lot of the advanced modeling, but you can do calculators and, and some basic modeling of what your farm will look like um, from a high level. So you get to also like complement what you're learning with running some high level ideas uh, for your model. So we really feel that's important. Again, like people are making mistakes all the time. So we're trying to democratize the basics. If you're curious about urban agriculture or controlled environment agriculture, this is really the, the best way to get that information. I mean, you could save thousands of dollars on even attending events, uh, traveling, et cetera, by just taking these classes. And that's something we feel really, really important, uh, is really important that we contribute is, is help people understand what's possible and guide them in the right direction. Again, if you want to go further, you can subscribe and advance in the software itself, or you can just say, okay, I know about this. I'm done. You know, I, I know what I need to know and you can move on. Yeah, it, it sounds like a great tool to gain at least like some basic idea and advanced uh, knowledge about the urban vertical farming and get started into the business or if you are already into the business, like get excelled towards the business. Uh, I think we previously mentioned uh, about climate smart agriculture and how agriculture is accompanying the ideas of climate smart agriculture and moving forward with that. And in the recent past years, like there has been an urge to ensure the food system is sustainable and resilient. Can you please explain to us like how aligned are the products and services offered by agriculture inclined towards this? Well, I think that, you know, controlled environment agriculture, greenhouse and vertical farms provide a certain level of resilience uh, to storms. And because they have year-round production and year-round staffing, they tend to be more resilient than some other types of farms. They don't depend on migrant labor as much. Um, there's they they can be in, in in any region in the world. So they're not they're not foolproof, but they are they are resilient. And I think I think that as our experience has been built from working primarily in CEA, uh, we have an interesting understanding of what resilient food systems could look like. However, that's not the end of it, right? Like even what we talked about with the project in the Czech Republic, that's a form of climate smart agriculture is helping farmers adapt to this volatility that they're facing. I think climate smart agriculture is very broad. I mean, even our work in agritourism is part of that, right? How can farmers be more resilient from other revenue streams? And so we're working on a number of agritourism projects around the world where the projects are hospitality projects, but they also complement the wider food system and vice versa. 
And so I think it's it's across technologies, business models, uh, the people, the fundamentals that are needed. So we we want to continue to push the envelope for what we can do. We know our team can do a lot more than just greenhouse and vertical farms. We've already proven that. And we want to open up our services to anybody who wants to move climate smart agriculture forward with us. That's awesome. I love the perspective you put that in this kind of adaption niche market and kind of how it's all fitting together in this unique kind of little puzzle. And I think I think that's really important. And so I'm going to ask you about how has your experience been working with customers using agritexture products and services? And is there like any particularly exciting experiences and or story that you would like to share with the audience today? I mean, I love I love our clients because they're the ones who are they're the visionaries, you know, like they're the ones who are like, okay, I could do so many things with my money and my time but I'm going to dedicate myself to the future of agriculture or sustainable agriculture or resilient agriculture or all of those things. So, you know, I think when I, when I, I I get so passionate about people's ideas for agriculture and I feel a responsibility to reduce their risk and guide them to their next steps and guide them to success. That's what I'm all about. Right. And and that's what we're all about at agritecture. So we love to just, hear their ideas and then start to brainstorm with them what's possible and sort of be their coaches, their data providers, their designers as they get going. The, the greatest success is when they build the farms and they're operating them. And you know, all of our clients that have built farms using our feasibility studies are still operating, which we're very proud of. But there was one client that really suffered during COVID. Uh, this was Farm One, which is a boutique vertical farm focused on Michelin star restaurants and providing a wide range of unique products delivered to people's homes. And they were scaling up. They were moving from their first facility to the next one. I was like, okay, wow, like our client Farm One is really doing amazing. Like they're in New York Times, they're serving all these restaurants, they're they're, they're building a a larger facility in Brooklyn to complement their one in Manhattan. And then boom, like COVID hit. And it was really sad for me to see that business suffer and basically shut down. However, in the last minute, just maybe six months ago, an investor stepped in and saved the business. And I got to visit last week to the new farm one, which has received more investment and has improved. And it's just so exciting to see these farms in person and to see that, you know, Rob Lang, the CEO, didn't give up. His passion continues to push forward for this subject. And now there's, you know, a really significant farm that's like the neighborhood farm in Brooklyn, Park Slope that people can access and, and, and go get tours from. And that education piece is also very important to me. So I think what I'm saying here is that there's like a people side to this business that I'm really passionate about, right? It's people's hopes and dreams. It's their challenges. And, you know, being with them on that journey is one of the most fulfilling parts of, for all of us at Agritecture. Yeah, great. Yeah. Thanks for bringing up that story. I think uh, that's, that was, challenging at the moment, but then how you brought like after COVID, they got an investor and how it's surviving or how it's pro- progressing these, these days sounds like really good. And that's something I guess like as a honor of the company, you would be proud to see. Absolutely. Yeah. We're yes. very, very proud of them and, and, and our other clients. They're the ones who are really taking the biggest risks. They're the ones that have to actually get down into the dirt or the hydroponic systems and, and do the work. So it's really, really hard. And I feel I feel privileged to be a part of that journey. And the reason I like consulting is because I get to help so many people in so many places. People ask me, why didn't you build a farm? And I said, because I, I'm global. Like, I just don't want to be limited to one place. And I feel like I'd rather help tens of thousands um, than just build one farm. And I think building one farm is great and admirable. But for me and, and the way I grew up and the impact I want to make, this is the perfect fit for me. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's that's really great. So uh, moving slightly uh, away from the products and services from you, like we'd like to take your opinion. What do you think are the biggest challenges in advancing the use of digital tools and technologies in an urban agriculture setting? You know, I think I was naive about digital solutions. Like I think that there's this whole story of software that you see in the news or movies it's like, oh yeah, you, know, you build software, it's scalable, you help a lot of people, it's like all of that. But it's really, really, really hard to find product market fit, to build something that people are going to adopt. 
So I think adoption is really the biggest challenge in agriculture. Um, it's such a complicated topic that I think for people to feel like there's a digital solution to their unique needs is, is really hard to convince. Whether you're an existing farmer and you're being sold an operational solution, a digital solution, how is it really going to understand my farm? You know, how is it really going to understand my way of doing things? It's just, there's so much diversity in agriculture, even in high tech controlled agriculture, there is quite a bit of diversity. So, you know, I think adoption is always the challenge across the sector. And you have a lot of companies that can't succeed because they can't break through and get a lot of farmers to adopt. Even with us, where we're not only targeting existing farmers, adoption is difficult. We learned after building our software that it's a little sophisticated for people, right? Like people sometimes get overwhelmed by the options and scenarios they can run. And so we had to listen to that and we had to build a basic estimator too, right? So if you want to go more advanced and detailed and customized, you can do that. We had to launch another basic one, a more simplified estimation tool. So people don't get overwhelmed by the options they have and so that they stick around and follow through because we know how we feel. If we get overwhelmed, we tend to sort of shut down. And so I think that those are some of the differences between existing farmers that are very skeptical of new tech and then new farmers that really want this very delicate balance of like a trusted way forward, but a very like efficient, fast, simple way forward. And that's why so many people in the new farmer category just go straight to buying equipment and they make big mistakes. Like, like oh, everyone's buying a container. I'm going to buy a container. And they end up having this farm that, you know, isn't producing the right product for their market, isn't the right scale. And it's just burning their money. And then they're turned off from the whole thing in the future, which is exactly what we don't want. You're hundred percent right on how do we deal with this data? How do we deal with these platforms? How do we get people to adopt these things and how do we make them useful for them? Because no, no farm, whether it's a controlled system or an entirely outdoors is the same. And I think that's where digital egg really needs to utilize that specialization. So I love that you brought up that point. I think that's important for our listeners to hear. And with that, I'm going to kind of turn into what do you think about the future of agricultural look like and what will the role of urban of urban farming in global food security? What do you think that looks like? Yeah, I mean, agriculture you know, is the world's largest employer. It's it's so important to our livelihoods. Um, so there's a, a lot of things that it's going to face as it as it has to evolve to provide more food more efficiently and in a more resilient way. We're seeing uh, really significant crop losses due to storms. We're seeing the fundamentals that allow microclimates or even typical regions that produce a lot, they're suffering. So yeah, we, we really are um, in trouble, frankly. We, we, really, we really are not prepared um, for what's going to happen to the agricultural system overall. We, we're getting hints of it, whether it's the war in Ukraine or COVID or what happens in California. These are shocks in the system, as we say, in sustainability um, that signal to us um, a, a lack of resilience. And so those shocks are kickstarting certain amounts of localization and, and, and resilient agriculture, which is great. So the solutions are there, right? Like we have the potential to do this with a range of regenerative agriculture, tech-enabled agriculture. They're, they really are there, but they're not moving fast enough to prevent the future challenges we face. So I, I, I definitely have a lot of concerns for it. But again, I am hopeful in the sense that we've never had more people interested in agriculture than we do now. Mm -hmm. uh, we, even though we have this sort of like legacy of people that are leaving their farms, we have all these new entrants coming in. And, and that goes back to my feeling of responsibility for people that want to invest their time and money into this. That is our hope, right? Is the people that say, this is not only important, but this is exciting. And this is something I'm passionate about. And we have people from cities, you know, motivated by this. And that brings us back to sort of, urban agriculture, which is people can say, oh, urban agriculture is small, it's on the fringe, et cetera. And I, I really don't like that at all because I think it's historically inaccurate. You can look back at uh, World War I and World War II where Victory Gardens provided significant percentages of the, the vegetable and fruit production that, we, that our societies consumed in that conflict and that shock to the supply chain. So I think it was 40% in World War II was, was grown in Victory Gardens of the fruits and vegetables in the United States. So that's that's pretty significant, right? That's, that's not that's not a small amount. And what that did is it allowed the conventional farmers to focus on things that can't be grown in the city, 
And I think that complement between urban and rural is so important, right? We've created this divide where it's like cities don't grow food and rural areas grow food, you know? <laughs> and it's like this really, really artificial divide because historically we used to always have the food we needed nearby, right? We, we, we either located ourselves near transport areas where we could get that trade or where we could grow the food, right? That's where we built our homes and we actually had food where we lived. Manhattan used to be full of farms, right? And then someone somewhere over time said, okay, we're gonna centralize it somewhere else, which had certain benefits, but has increased the, the risk to our system. So I, I'm explaining this in a really long way, but you know, whether you look at World War I, World War II, the Cuban uh, blockade, where, where, where supplies from Russia, fertilizer and nutrients and, and, and various seeds couldn't get to Cuba, whether you look at COVID, and how uh, certain societies adapted through urban agriculture. You know, these are there's so many examples of this already from history that to me, if you're not a city who's got a plan for urban agriculture, you're just missing out on economic sustainability and food access and food resilience benefits. It simply doesn't make sense. And if you look at even developing countries, their cities produce a lot more food than developed countries. And, you know, that's because we just need to change our mindset about how we think about cities. Why, why are they just commercial and residential spaces? We need more green spaces. We need more productive spaces. And we need a percentage of our cities to at least know how to grow food. Yeah, I think what you bring up is is really valuable and especially the history of it, of how we look at urban ag and how, how it's being developed and kind of where some of those challenges to adoption really lie. So I, I appreciate that you brought up that perspective. Thank you. Yeah, I really like like how you highlighted different challenges that we are currently facing and how urban agriculture plays a role like to expand on what opportunities we have to minimize the impacts of those uh, of those things. On that note, like as we are coming towards the end of the episode, so if someone is interested in trying agriculture product services or learning more about them, how do you suggest they get started? Yeah, we really have a range of, of solutions, no matter where you are in your journey. I definitely recommend you at least sign up for our newsletter at agritecture.com so you can get access to the best blog posts. So at least your curiosity for urban agriculture or controlled environment agriculture or even climate smart agriculture that we write about is uh, you, you, you satisfy that, that interest, that curiosity and start your journey in a, in a free way. So that, that's, I think, a great place to start. Um, if you want to really go further and, and take the classes, it's also a great way to start. You can learn about those at design.agritecture.com, which is where the whole agritecture designer platform lives. And of course, if you are looking for premium, fast uh, services from a dedicated multidisciplinary team, you can always reach out to us for consulting. Uh, I'm on Instagram at the agritect. If you want to hear about cool projects that are going on, I'm currently running a fundraiser there for Teeds for Food Justice which is uh, builds vertical farms in marginalized communities and helps youth grow their own food for their own community to combat food insecurity. So you can follow me on Instagram. I'm a nomad. I travel the world. I visit tons of farms. I do farm tours. So there's a couple options for you to engage and we'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Awesome. And is there anything else we didn't talk about today that you might want to add or mention to share with our listeners? I guess I just think that, you know, when I was starting my career and I became aware of the climate challenge, I, I really converted my, my journey to say, okay, like you can do anything you want with your life, but there's no reason not to dedicate your work to some social or environmental problem. So I just encourage everyone to consider social entrepreneurship, which to me includes also environmental entrepreneurship, right? You can make money by selling a better watch or a better wheel, or you can solve an environmental or social problem. And, and there's, there's money to be made. There's a lot of satisfaction you can get out of your life and your experience. And in the end, we need all hands on deck to solve these problems. So when you're considering your career, when you're considering where you dedicate your time, try to think about another layer of impact that's beyond just the financial um, or the other things you're considering. Try to think about what's the meaningful difference you're gonna make in the world. And I think you're gonna get more satisfaction out of your work and your life. I love that perspective. Yeah, I think. I think you also got into like our last question of <laughs> what we have. So a tradition on Farm Beats podcast is to ask for a piece of advice. So what piece of advice do you have for our listeners who are looking to get started with urban agriculture business? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I do give sort of common, or at least I give a standard response to this because I think it's really helpful and, and I'll try to do it briefly, but you can read more about it in my article, I Want to Be an Agritech, uh, where I lay out the three main steps to break into the industry and I share the things that I wish I would have known before I started, because my journey was relatively long, but I think yours could be faster. So, you know, uh, number one, you need to build a database, an archive of information. You need to know what you're talking about, the investments, the crops, the technologies, that's gonna really help you build your, your knowledge experience. So literally recording what you're learning and building your own database is my, my number one step. Number two is you need to get hands-on experience. I really struggled to get interviews or to get legitimacy until I worked in some hydroponic farms myself and some community gardens. There's great opportunities to volunteer in urban agriculture. So go get your hands dirty, um, exchange. I, I, I offered social media to a greenhouse and they let they taught me hydroponics. That was the exchange that I did. So, um, you know, you can do things like that. And then finally, you know, when you're networking, when you're building your network, which is a key part of growing, focus on giving versus getting. Uh, I used to be really nervous when I would go to events and try to meet people. Um, but once I had something that I was focused on giving, my confidence grew and I was actually able to build more meaningful relationships that were more memorable. So instead of being like, oh, you know, can I get a job with you or are you hiring? I would say, hey, you know, I write about urban agriculture. I really like your company. Can I write a blog post about you? And then the relationship starts. So I think those are my three tips for breaking into the sector. And, and I think if you dedicate your attention to those, you'll get a job um, pretty fast. Thank you very much to Henry for taking the time to join this episode of the FarmBits podcast. It's really exciting to see how the company is operating globally, it providing digital tools and technologies to help farmers and enterprises at a localized scale. One of my favorite parts of this episode and what this company is doing is the idea that how urban agriculture plays a role in promoting food security, particularly during the time of global crisis. I would have to agree. Their ability to innovatively solve world problems through the use of digital tools and techniques is inspiring for the future of agriculture. I hope you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to sharing another digital ag story with you next week on FarmBits. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on the FarmBits podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to be informed about the latest content each week. We welcome your feedback. So if you have any comments or questions for us, please reach out to us over email, on Twitter, or in the review section of your favorite podcast platform. Our contact information can be found in the show notes. We would like to thank Nebraska Extension for their support of this podcast and their commitment to providing high quality informational material to members of the agricultural community in Nebraska and beyond. The opinions expressed by the host and guest on this podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the views of Nebraska Extension or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We look forward to you joining us next week for another episode of Farm Beats.